Well, we all love a good story. And I imagine for all of us, think back to a time when maybe something happened and you witnessed it, you saw it, and you remember every detail. You could go back and it's as if you were there. You can see it. Remember how it, it felt. Um, I, this story for me, I, I remember a time when we were living in Israel and as a student and we'd spend our day studying We'd study scriptures all day, really trying to understand the writings of scripture, understanding God's heart, and really trying to figure out then what does that mean for us. And so we'd spend our days studying here in Jerusalem. And uh, one of those days when we were studying a group of students together, we heard outside, we heard a bunch of commotion. And when you live in Jerusalem, commotion outside isn't all that new necessarily, But for us, it seemed a little different, and it was this time of year, so it was just after all of the holidays, and all the Jewish holidays. And and as we were there, we heard the commotion, and one of the other students ran in and said, come outside, you guys have to come with us. You have to see. So we ran out. We ran out, and we saw, actually, there was this crowd forming, and they were all walking kind of towards the Temple Mount. So we didn't know why, but we thought, hey, let's go together. We started to walk. Kind of, there was excitement in the air, there was a, uh, and, and, but there was a lot of unknown. What are we doing? We saw up front there were some of our teachers leading the crowd. And we were saying, what, what are we doing? Why are we going up this way? And someone else said, because we found someone who was caught in adultery. And the teachers want us to come with because we are going to carry out the law we're going to carry out the law of Moses that we've been studying all day, and today's the day we have to bring the death penalty to her. And so the group, we kept walking, and we walked up towards, we saw the temple looming in the distance. At that moment, for me, it was one of those kind of moments where you stop and everything is swirling around you. Because we have this, zealous, this zeal for the law, and I thought, part of me thought, Okay, I can't believe after the holidays, after we just asked God to forgive us for the sins of the year, that someone would already be doing something like adultery, caught in adultery already. And there was this kind of holy anger inside. I can't believe that people don't care about our law. But then there's another part of me that said, are we really going to do this? And all of us as students, they said, start finding rocks. And as we walked up, we would find something that we could throw at the woman and just think what was going through my mind at the time to think, could I do it? I mean, we talk about it in our law that the punishment is death, but we never do it. I've never seen it done. No one's ever in my lifetime thrown a rock and and killed someone for violating the law, but it says it right there. Moses wrote it. If you are caught, that's the punishment. And so I had this righteous anger, but then I was filled with this fear. Could I get myself to throw a rock at another person? And even knowing at this time that the Romans wouldn't even allow us to carry out the death penalty, So why are we doing this now? Is this the time are our teachers saying, we have to make a stand? 
We have to put a line in the sand and stand for what's right. And who cares what the government says? Is this the time? Maybe that's what it is. So inside, I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with rage, and I'm also confused. Why now? Well, the crowds, we kept walking more and more would join us as we're moving now up onto the Temple Mount into the courtyard. And the crowd stopped, and I made my way with my fellow students to the front, and there we saw it. There she was, a woman who's been thrown at the feet of another teacher, this teacher named Jesus. Our teachers had told us about him. See, there was rumors that he was perhaps the new, the Messiah we've been waiting for who showed up. We heard of his miracles. We've heard of the things that he did. But our teachers warned us and said, hey, this is nothing new. We've had rumors of Messiahs before. Even our beloved Judas Maccabee, at one point, people thought he was a Messiah. And they said, don't worry, these things come and go. One day he'll die. He'll be forgotten. His life will have not meant anything. Don't be deceived. Which was why I also was so confused. Why did you bring her to him? Why did we even come up on the Temple Mount if we are to carry out this execution? We wouldn't do it on the Temple. We have to go outside of the city. So why would we even come here? And why to him could it be that the teacher's actually believed that he did have authority, that he was the Messiah. Did they want to learn from him? Later, I found out that the only reason we did that was because they wanted to trick him. They wanted to trap him. If he said something like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's carry out the death sentence. The Romans would arrest him. And they knew that, and, and so they were trying him. But then if he said, no, let's not do it, he didn't have any care about the law of God. He was stuck at the time, I didn't know that. I was confused. I was scared. But you could feel the crowd getting angry, trembling. At the, there was this sense that something big was about to happen, and I wasn't sure what I should do. So they brought this woman to Jesus, and as she sat there on the ground, they said, well, teacher, you're a teacher of the law. We caught this woman in the act of adultery. What should we do? What do you say? And I don't know what it was, but something about that moment made me think, this is a strange thing to accuse her of because she was alone. Where's the other person? Why just her? Something doesn't seem right. What's going on here? And they asked Jesus, and I was waiting for him to give us an answer, to give us some wisdom. Everyone knows he's been teaching with authority, so maybe now my heart is starting to turn a little. Maybe he will give us some clarity, but he doesn't. He didn't. He just kneeled down on the ground, and he started scribbling in the dirt. I remember thinking, maybe this guy really is crazy. <laughs> Did he not hear what we said? The question was, what should we do? She's caught in adultery, and he didn't say a word. He got down and started writing, and I thought, was he going to draw pictures? This cannot be the Messiah. This guy has lost his mind. 
But then I looked down, and I saw what he was writing. As he got down and he scribbled in the sand, he wrote in our language, Lo ihiye lacha elahim arahim alpani. You shall have no other gods before you. He kept writing. He said, Lo ta'asa lacha patzal. You shall not make any idols. One by one, he kept writing in the sand. He was writing out what we know now as the Ten Commandments. One by one. As a crowd was staring and watching him, I think that there was a mood was changing and we started to understand that he didn't say anything, but he was teaching us in this moment. Fear now was changing to something different. I couldn't explain it. I don't know what it was. But I know as I looked at each of those commands written down, I knew that these were the ones I study every single day. Every single day we ask the question, how do we live this out? What does it mean if we're not doing this right? He even writes, make sure you keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't forget about it. Wait, isn't this the one who actually healed someone on the Sabbath? He wrote more. Our teachers kept asking him, hey teacher, Jesus, are you ever going to say anything? What should we do with this woman? What do you think we should do? He kept writing. I knew if he keeps writing, maybe he was just waiting to get to the punchline here. But I knew we were going to get to the one. Maybe it was just for this moment. He first he writes, Lo, Tiritzah, don't kill someone. That one kind of struck me. Is this considered murder, what we're about to do? I don't know. But then he wrote the next command Lo, Tiraf, don't commit adultery. Maybe that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for that moment. He writes it down. Don't commit adultery. It is clear now. This is what that moment is for. He continued to scribble, and the teacher said, Okay, you, you wrote it. Now what do you say? Jesus stood up. He looked around at the crowd. At this point, we're all holding our rocks we're all ready to carry out this deed. I, I don't know what it's going to feel like, but if, if we have to do this, let's do this. And I'm waiting for Jesus to pick up his rock. What's he going to do now? He looks down at the woman, and he looked down at all of us. And he said, he who's without sin, go ahead. You should be the first to throw a stone at her. He said that, and you could just see everyone's eyes look back down in the sand. We all knew that none of us are perfect. 
We all knew that none of us could carry out this law every day, all the time, exactly the way God wants. We knew that. That's what we debate day after day. That's why we just had Yom Kippur. That's why we just had our day of atonement to say, God, forgive us because we can't keep this law. We can't do it. So we knew that none of us were without sin. We knew we were all guilty. Then he got back down and kept writing. And then he writes the next command. Do not bear false witness against someone. I think that's about all anyone could take. So our head leader, our head teacher, looked at the woman, looked at Jesus, and took his rock, threw it down, and walked away. One by one, our teachers threw down their rocks in disgust and walked away. Got to the point where it's just a few of us students left. We were the ones spending all day studying this stuff, and I don't know if any of us really knew what to do. And one by one, each person threw their rock down until it was just me. I was the last one standing there. Me, this woman, and Jesus. And I don't know what it was, but something inside of me knew that I wasn't going to throw the rock. Something inside of me knew that I couldn't do this, but something inside me, fr I froze in that moment, and I couldn't, I couldn't move. The magnitude of what I was looking at, there's something inside me that was changing in that very place. It's as if I could sense God's presence. And I watched as Jesus, this supposed Messiah, was writing in the sand, and I was recalling our own scriptures. In Exodus chapter 20, when, when God actually gave these Ten Commandments to Moses, we're told that God himself wrote these commands with the finger of God. And I couldn't help, but as I looked down and saw Jesus scribbling in the sand, I thought, the finger of God is writing these commands right here. Could it be that no longer do I think of him as a fraud, but this is that Messiah. This is God in flesh. This is the servant we've been waiting for. According to Isaiah, as he says, our servant will come. He will be here and take the sins of the world away. The finger of Jesus is the finger of God, writing the very commands once again, but now right before me. And I knew at that moment that that was the moment that I was going to follow this Messiah. That this is the real Jesus. The one we've been waiting for. Our Savior. And at that moment, something really profound happened. Jesus looked up and he saw me. He looked me right in the eyes. I was frozen. He didn't say anything. He just kind of gave a smile. It wasn't a smile that was mocking. It wasn't a smile that said, I told you so. It wasn't even a smile that said, so what are you going to do? It was a smile that kind of said, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I couldn't take it anymore. So I took my rock. I dropped it on the ground. And I turned away. 
I couldn't believe what I just saw. I couldn't believe what was just happening. And as I walked away, I heard Jesus speak to the woman. And I heard the words he said, Hey, woman, is there any of your accusers left? Is there anyone left here to condemn you? And you could hear the trembling in her voice, the shame that she was experiencing almost was washed away as she looked up and said, no, no one, Rabbi. There's no one left to condemn me. And as I was walking away, I slowly, I, I wanted to hear, so I kind of paused and I heard him say, then neither will I condemn you. And I know it sounds crazy, because I know he was talking to her, but I swear in that moment that he wanted me to hear the same thing. I know he wanted me to hear the same. And so I looked back over at my shoulder to see Jesus and the woman. And he looked up at me, looked me in the eyes, and just nodded. And I walked away. Every 
perfect song, an original of hers. How much does that fit with today? Um, my name's Ryan, by the way. <laughs> when we just read this passage uh, here today, and obviously uh, as we went through this, this is one of those passages in Scripture that there's a lot of mystery around it, and just want to give you a few thoughts um, as we continue and wrap up our morning, but a few thoughts of this. First is, many of your Bibles, you might see that this passage says that it's not in, in the original manuscript. So we want to call that out. Uh, we, uh, this is a story, and not very many times in our Bibles do you see something like this, but this is one that actually literally says that we don't have any of our earliest copies of the Bible that has this story in it. Uh, probably not until uh, the, about 400 um, AD that we first see it in written form, but it's, we see it mentioned even a couple centuries before that time. 
So we know that this was part of the oral tradition of Jesus in the scriptures, and at some point it was added in. We, just, we really debated should we even teach it or not, but as we understood, this is part of, uh, most would say, and even early Christian scholars would say that this is a real story that was part of the Jesus the narratives of Jesus and part of his story, and we don't know why it wasn't in the original one, or maybe it was, but it showed up again. But most people believe this is an authentic story of Scripture. But as we look at it, one of the things, just so you know, too, if it taught us something that was different than what we know about Jesus, and we would say this is not real. So nothing in this story would contradict what we know about Jesus or the faith. But there's a lot of mystery in it, isn't there? All we know is that Jesus kneels down and he writes something in the sand. I kind of gave you my bias of what I think it is. It seems to make sense, but we don't know. We don't know at all. But a couple of thoughts. First thought is this. In chapter 7, Jesus was being accused of being an uneducated Galilean. One of that would entail is that he would be illiterate, is what they meant. It was very uncommon to be educated enough to read and write. And so even the fact that he writes in the ground is making a statement of, I'm not that uneducated, uh, podunk person you're accusing me of, but actually there is authority and, and even a background of knowledge that I have. His very ability to write the language would have been unique. And then, of course, I have this theory about this finger of God. I think it's really interesting. If you look at Exodus uh, chapter 31, verse 18, I have this on the screen for you. It says this. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So there's this belief in the Hebrew scriptures that, that however this stone happened and was inscribed, whether it was through Moses or whatever, But the finger of God is how they describe the law coming to them, that God's actual finger writes it. Now, this would be common in the ancient world where the finger of God was also a sign of authority. We see Pharaoh, actually, when he's receiving some of the um, plagues, he says this in Exodus chapter um, 8, he says, this is the finger of God. When he sees the power of these plagues, he said that's the finger of God, that there's authority, there's something else authoring this moment. We even see it in the book of Daniel, where there's this writing on the wall where we get our, our, our saying to this day of, oh, I see the writing on the wall. It was the finger of God writing a warning. It was this symbol of if that is authority. So there's something about the finger of God, and I, I love the imagery of connecting it directly to the original Ten Commandments and what was happening in this story in John chapter 8. That it was all about, are we going to be zealous for the law? Is Jesus going to be zealous for it? What is he going to do about it? And so it, it, he brings them to the point where he says, well, which one of you is innocent? It, it would make sense. Now let me say this. If he didn't write the Ten Commandments in the sand, that's okay. We don't know. I don't know what he wrote. He might have been drawing pictures for all I know. I don't think he was. Because the story holds up without it. But so here's this moment where he asks the crowd to come face to face with their own self-righteousness. Or perhaps it's this, come face to face with their own unrighteousness. 
to come face to face with the fact that none of us can hold up the law. That is very consistent throughout scripture. And if you read the narrative of Israel, it's very clear that they struggled to follow out and follow through on the commands of God. Nearly impossible. Paul goes on and he writes about that in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, he's starting in verse 19. I don't have this on the screen. I have one a little bit later on on the screen for you. It says this. It says, we know that whatever the law says, it says it to those of us who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. In other words, none of us are without excuse. If we're under this law, we're all accountable and none of us are going to follow through. Verse 20. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The very writings of God tells us and points to us how much we fall short of his perfect design for who we are. Verse 21 of Romans 3 says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, Paul goes on and says, apart from the law, there's this righteousness that will come to you, and righteousness meaning to be right in the eyes of God. If the law couldn't do it, if following the rules couldn't do it, now something has changed in Jesus. And, and Paul says, the law and the prophets testify, meaning the whole Old Testament has been pointing to this Messiah, Savior, Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. I have these verses on the screen for you. It says this. This righteousness, this right relationship with God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This story we read today is a real life, real time play out of this. That we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are without excuse, but we can be made right in the eyes of Jesus because, or of God because of the work that Jesus did. By our faith, we are justified. I want you all, uh, when you came in, you had a rock on your seat. Go ahead and grab that rock. Thankfully today, we did not do the story of David and Goliath. But I want you to hold that rock because this is what we actually know about our lives. That without Jesus, each one of us falls short of God and his goodness. Each one of us falls short of his standard. Each one of us falls short of what he's the life he's designed us to live. And if we were to carry out the law, each one of us would deserve this rock. We would. So I love the imagery of the story of the rocks that were dropped and they're left there at the feet of Jesus and this woman because she, if she truly was caught, and that's debatable in this story too, right? There's some holes in the accusation and in the court case. <laughs> but either way, she deserved the rocks. But she didn't get it. You and I deserve the rock, but we don't get it because Jesus took these rocks for us. One last verse for you in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. 
Look what Paul writes. I love this. You show that you are, he's writing to the church in Corinth, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Look at this. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I love the connection of, once again, the finger of God who writes the law is actually writing your name and my name into the book of life. The testimony that we are right with God is written with the hand of Jesus, spiritually, metaphorically, all of it. And now it's not tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts, of real people. So what do we do with this story? I think there's two applications. The first is this. Many of us walk through life and we carry around stones and they're meant for other people. They're meant for all the people around us who don't measure up, all the people around us who let you down, all the people around us who are anti-God, anti-Jesus. They might label you, put you in a camp. These rocks, we walk around in our hearts and I hope it's just a metaphor, but we walk around carrying rocks for others. Those that don't deserve the grace of God. Today, maybe God's inviting you to drop the rock. The other application would be this. Many of you walk through life expecting that this is all you deserve. You fall short. You keep struggling with your addiction. You have broken relationships. You just, the sin you're trying to get over, you keep going back to over and over again. You just can't get it right. And if you were face to face with God, you'd say, I don't even deserve you. I don't deserve your love. And you walk around with life thinking that you're just one moment away from this rock coming your way because that's what you deserve. You're filled with shame and guilt. And today I want to invite you to believe that Jesus took the rock for you. It's not aimed at you anymore. He took it when he spread out his arms on the cross and all of your sins of the past, of the present, and the sins you're going to commit in the future, he took the rock for you. It's done. Would you believe today that it's done? Would you walk out with this sense of this grace that overwhelms you and say, thank you, Jesus, that you took this for me? And please know that it came at a cost. He felt it. He felt the shame, the embarrassment and the pain. He felt it. But you deserve it because of his love for you. So I'm going to invite you to take this rock home with you. Take it home and maybe have it somewhere and it's just a reminder this week that you have been given grace and you can give grace because of what God has done. We're going to sing one last song. I want to invite you to stand with us as we end our time. And maybe if you have your rock with you, would you just hold your rock and let's close our eyes and say a prayer really quickly. God, every rock that we're holding in this place right now, we thank you so much that, Lord, you took these for us. I thank you that you didn't allow us to go through life with these aimed at us. But you took it. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And Lord, help us walk in that freedom. 
And Lord, even as we hold these rocks, there's times when we are tempted to throw them at others around us. Lord, would you give us open hands, soft hearts, or to know that you are the holder of all things. You are the only one worthy of judging. So help us, Lord, to let go. Receive our praise as we turn our hearts and respond to you now, Lord. It's the last song.